0: Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast my name is Pete Murray I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University I'm joined here in the MMU journalism newsroom by my colleague Dave Porter hello Dave hi Pete I'm Jeremy Craddock hi Jess. hi Pete and on the line by Deborah Linton hi Deborah Hi, Pete. So this week, we're looking at the first public response in two years to new criticism of the highly controversial story dubbed the Muslim foster care row by the reporter Andrew Norfolk of The Times. We'll look at coverage of the racist chanting at the England-Bulgaria match this week, which led to the game being halted twice under UEFA rules. And as the Supreme Court marks its 10th anniversary this week, we're reading from a beautifully illustrated children's book, which profiles the court president, Lady Hale or Judge Brenda, as the authors Afua Hirsch and Hedy Beaumont call her. More on that later. But first, Dave, Deborah, Jez, what's caught your eye this week? Dave?
1: Um, I noticed there was a, uh, the BBC have had uh, 600 odd complaints about an interview with spiked, editor Brendan O'Neill, he was on a panel talking about Brexit and at one stage he said something along the lines of, you know, look at France and the gilets jaunes, it's amazing people are not rioting in the streets, at which Mm. point he was pulled up and, and, you know, asked to Justifies comments and and talked about radical protests and weren't people on the streets uh, of actually they do seem to be outside parliament. Uh, But that, his comments then sparked a barrage of complaints into the BBC. I suppose on the lines of incitement or, you know, these comments cannot be justified. Um, Some Twitter outrage. But in fact, the BBC stood stood its ground and said, um, no, he was picked up by both the host and the guests. And, you know, we can't be held responsible for what people say. And sometimes they make provocative comments and I think in this case it's, it's a pretty good call
0: yeah interesting that I mean that you know the usual thing that it's so long as it's if you're broadcasting live if you yeah. respond immediately or explain what the context of it is yeah. and that just given of
1: of what we've discussed in the past few weeks yeah. I thought it was worth uh, yeah <laughs> it was quite interesting
0: yeah yeah I mean we've, we've seen a flavor of some of that that kind of the the, the level of the protest and the anger involved in some of the protests oh. i was i was down at the the conservative party conference here in manchester city center a couple of weeks ago and there were no clashes between the pro and anti-brexit people but there was a lot of noise and a lot of fuss mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the police were keeping a very, very close eye on, well, a particular number of the ringleaders on either side. But
1: yeah, I think O'Neill was talking about, obviously, you know, leave people. Sure. Why is the will of the people not being adhered mm. to? So he, I think he was making a very particular point about, you know, that camp.
0: Yeah, so far it's contained. But, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll see what the EU summit brings and mm. Saturday's, Saturday's uh, extra <laughs> sitting of Parliament and so on. Um, Deborah, what's, what's caught you right so far this week on the news?
2: Just interesting to take a quick look at the coverage on the Queen's speech, um, which kind of, um, you know, obviously covering the bills that are in there, but I think the papers have been in, as interested in how this is positioned and the circumstances, you know, talking about pomp and circumstance rather than pomp and ceremony in terms of, you know, referring to it as, as a sham or an election manifesto or trying to kind of pull out whether the Queen looks furious as the Express did um, at uh, Boris Johnson as delivering his speech. Um, so, interesting to take a quick look at that and um, certainly in our, in our uh, law and ethics sessions, we've continued with the story I know you guys touched on last week um, on uh, Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy, which has been quite interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. massive enlisting.
0: fun. Massive fun yeah. about all of that.
2: Completely tantalising tale, but also super interesting in terms of kind of pulling it apart. In terms of any potential defamation claims, issues around privacy, um, the position it put the Sun in around their sources. So we've continued looking at that a bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, the Queen's speech. Very interesting. Uh, my learned friend David Alan Green at the Financial Times. He unpicked one element of that, where the the, the in the Queen's speech they, they had that that uh, bill where they want to increase the, or rather, reduce the, the 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 amount of time someone can serve for a serious offence. So normally people would, would get you know time off for for good behaviour and so on, and they want to bring that that. Uh, Time down but actually David Allen Green and a number of others on Twitter pointed out that actually it's quite a niche area so although it sounds like the government's being tough on crime they, they were talking about quite a, a small number of offences that, mm. that would attract a, a sentence of seven years and above so yeah. they'll be hard on them but actually for sentences of, of less than that the, 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 the new bill won't touch them at all. Yeah
2: it's def- it's definitely that, that crime bill that has um, kind of Uh, taken the lead on the headlines in terms of the contents of the speech itself and, like you say, um, unpicking it as, as you would expect the papers to do and whether it is kind of all it says it is.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, um, Jez, you brought up the, the Colleen uh, story last week, so yeah. that there's still a bit of backwash from that. Yeah. there anything, anything fresh on that in addition to what Deborah's just said or, or anything else that's caught your eye? We,
3: I think Deborah said that we'd had a good discussion with the Level 6s in Law and Ethics on yeah. the, the Colleen and uh, Rebecca Vardy issue. And I think the students... Didn't really initially see what the you know the interest was from our point of view in it, but when we went into it and looked at the potential defamation claim that Rebecca Vardy may well make against Colleen, but also the the care with which Colleen's statement had been made, and you know. Obviously, had been run by, um, by a lawyer. They um, could see the implications of that. Um, but I understand Rebecca Vard is uh, now hired IT specialist to go through her Instagram account forensically to uh, see if there has been a potential leak. Yeah. Yeah, so yes.
0: it's, it's interesting, it's going to run anything yeah. else you've been looking at so far this week? well that was
3: that was that one and the other one really was what we're going to touch on uh, the England and Bulgaria um, yeah. game, racist rap, I won't well, let's come won't to that in just a moment because
0: I wanted just to mention quickly, I've been looking at a report that came out uh, overnight mm-hmm. I think from the Media Standards Trust, it says the press regulator Ipso is not meeting a number of the recommendations made after the Leveson inquiry for what would constitute an independent regulator, it's a 40 page report and the trust says Ipso only satisfies 13 out of almost 40 criteria specified by Lord Justice Leveson in his 2012 report. The trust accepts that Ipso has implemented some changes which give the regulator greater independence from industry control. It also welcomes a new arbitration system which Ipso introduced this year. However, the authors say they're concerned about what they describe as structural deficiency over how the body's financed. They say the regulatory funding company, and by implication newspaper proprietors and editors, continue to exert an unnecessary degree of control over the Ipso system. The Trust also largely dismisses a review which Ipso commissioned three years ago by Sir Joseph Pilling in which he said he found no evidence of improper influence by the industry over Ipso's decision-making. We contacted Ipso for a response this morning. They said this report only builds on flaws in previous Trust investigations five years ago.
1: At no point did the Trust approach Ipso for information or comments to give them insight into the organisation. This report is a sterile academic view which pays no regard to the actual practice or reality of Ipso's regulation. In conducting his independent external review, Sir Joseph Pilling had full access to Ipso. His report is an accurate snapshot of Ipso's effectiveness and independence.
0: So anything else from from that folks, anything we should pick up from that? Um, Ipso's, Ipso's says that it's, it's meeting all the criteria that, that they think uh, they, they need to. And some of the other things from Levison are, I guess, I, they, they judge them to be... I mean, they referral. were never
1: going to be fully Levison compliant. No. And, and oh. if you look at the Pilling Review, which some might say was flawed, people like Hacktoff would say, and maybe the Media Trust would say, um, they, the Pilling Review said, you know... For, it's doing its job to a degree um to quite a large degree actually um thought it was interesting i was looking at a a post on inform about uh, the transparency project and the complaints to both um the daily express and ibso about a story uh, and they felt that they'd um not got anywhere really and it was a flawed system uh, and this was came on top of uh, Various other complaints. So I think you know it, it. It raises some interesting issues. Like you, Pete, I only saw it this morning. Mm. I've not had a chance to look into it. Yeah. But on the on the face, it looks quite damning. But obviously, we' always saying it's flawed, yeah. it doesn't address what we do day to day.
0: Yeah, and when I contacted Ipso this morning, they said, this is the statement <clears> we've got so far, but we, we're going to do a sure. much more thorough yeah. um, uh, position on it. And so, I mean, it looks like they're very much standing in I mean, it all depends
1: on the standards by which you judge it. So if you, if you want it to be mm. less in compliant, it's always going to fall short.
0: Yeah, and, and just, I guess most, every other regulator probably yeah. would in, in many respects, in one respect or another. So, yeah, yeah, yeah Jen, just
3: saying, it kind of just emphasises the gulf between newspapers and people who are wanting to get a tighter rein on the press. And it depends which side of the argument you stand on, really, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, Ipso's saying that it's, it's, uh, they're taking, the Media Standards Trust has taken a very academic sort of point mm. of view on this rather than the point of view of journalists or the press. So uh, more now in the renewed focus on a series of articles in The Times by the, their chief investigator investigative reporter Andrew Norfolk into the fostering of a five-year-old girl by Tower Hamlets Council in East London in the care of a Muslim family. Now, more than two years on from the original report, Andrew Norfolk's given his first interview to BBC Radio 4's The Corrections Programme. He says, in hindsight, he wouldn't touch the story now with a barge pole. Here's a flavour of the opening of the programme with presenter Joe Fidgen and producer Chloe haji Mateo.
4: Before we get into the detail, let's get a sense of just how misleading this story was. We've been hearing from two people who know it well. Martin Barrow, a former news editor at The Times, and Andy Elvin, who runs a fostering charity. I read the opening of the original Times article to them and asked them to stop me whenever they heard something that didn't fit with what they knew. So it starts like this. Christian child forced into Muslim well, foster care. Um, yeah. That's the headline. You've That's... got a problem with the headline.
3: Yeah, because it's inaccurate. OK. <laughs>
4: Paragraph one, then. Uh, a white Christian child...
0: Stop. We know that she came from a, a very complicated family background, a Muslim background. Um, next.
4: OK. Oh, a white Christian child was taken from her family and forced to live with a niqab-wearing foster carer.
3: Forced is a difficult, awkward word.
4: What do you think would be a more appropriate verb?
3: Placed. That's, the, 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 that's what is used commonly in the system.
4: Okay, let's carry on and see how far I can get. (laughs) In a home where she was allegedly encouraged to learn Arabic.
0: She wasn't. So in response to the programme, journalism professor Brian Cathcart from Kingston University has written to The Times repeating his demand that the editor, James Witherow, apologises for errors such as these. So, Deborah, what what new has emerged from the programme? Where's the story going now, do you think?
2: I mean, first to say, I think this programme was absolutely excellent. It was a really good piece of reporting and sort of, they've delved quite deep into this and managed to secure the um, only interview that Andrew Norfolk has done since that first week when the story broke. Um, So in the time since, in the few years... um, and a, and a complaint by tell Hamlet to so about this story was upheld. There were 178 complaints in total. Um, and um, the Times were forced to um, publish uh, quite prominently, I think, front page, their adjudication, Ipso's adjudication, which ruled that they distorted facts. So that's kind of where it's reached in, um, in terms of that avenue. What comes out of the programme through this conversation with Norfolk is... Um, yeah, you know, He talks about how he believes the narrative that's developed over the past two years was misleading. And, and like you say, he says, presented with the same facts again. He wouldn't touch it with a barge pole, although he does say that's because of the impact it's had and the legacy that it's left. And he then goes through quite forensically.
0: Yeah, because he's, he's quite unapologetic about Correct. the investigation himself and, and yeah. the reliability of his sources and so on, isn't he?
2: Absolutely. He sticks very much by the reliability of his sources, the methods used and that sort of thing, which are, you know, very traditional journalistic methods. There's nothing sort of, you know, deep delving sort of any deeper. It just he does a very good job in terms of what he's always done. But... Um, the issues that come up around it are, you know, the narrative that then came out of it in the front page. And he talks about, you know, it, it's put to him that there were a number of quite evocative symbolic facts that were were played up in that front page in terms of um, the little girl's crucifix being taken away from her, which it turns out a day after the article was published in court was actually for, because it was valuable. He accepts, yes, if I'd have known that it would be different. This, you know, and then famously
0: also she wasn't allowed to eat the carbonara spaghetti carbonara. because it had fallen on the floor and, and the, the foster carers thought that it was unhealthy, not because it had right. pork in it.
2: And that comes out in this. And in, in the PC he accepts, you know, it, it's, it became known as the carbonara case because supposedly this little girl hadn't been able to eat her favourite dish of carbonara because um, it was a household where they wouldn't eat pork. Actually, it transpires again in the court case the day after that it was because, it, like you say, it was dropped on the floor. So what I thought was quite interesting. He's he he was asked, you know, couldn't you have delayed publication? You know, couldn't you have waited till the court case the next day? And would you accept it would have been published differently? Um, so he he sort of goes on to talk about yes, there's two different narratives to this, but but again, like you say, quite unapologetic. Both viable narratives in in his point of view. Um, and I think the other the final thing that I thought was particularly interesting from this program is the testimony of Martin Barrow who is a previous news editor of the Times and on there you know who um, Andrew Norfolk seeks his counsel as as a friend and and former colleague and sort of Martin Barrow talks about advising him not to go near this story and he goes ahead and does it so um, and I think they then mention that they've not spoken since or something like that I could be wrong but it's it's um, it's just very interesting to dissect something that had such a massive impact. Um, and his final remarks, would you regret publishing the initialist story? And he says, apart from the impact on me, no. Um, so where's it going to go next? I don't believe the Times are any more likely to apologise now than they were at the time. If they deemed that it was necessary to apologise, they would have done so already, and I don't believe that they deem that it is.
3: Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I mean... He seemed quite um shocked by the response, didn't he? He was quite uh, you know, um controlled in that interview um on the corrections. Um but the, as you say, there doesn't seem to be any any movement on uh, apologising or correcting it. Um which has obviously led to Brian Cathcart's uh, letter to the Times as well, hasn't it? Um be interesting to see what their response to that would be. There was also the, the, the piece in the, in the, uh, the programme as well saying that um, the editor of the Times had directed Andrew Norfolk to um, to report on this, but he, he denied that, didn't he, in the corrections? Mm, categorically, yeah. Yeah, he said that it was, it was, uh, he was working off his own initiative with that. Because, um, of
2: course, that would, I think, for people that raised a much more serious question about who, you know, can you get... You know, can you get a story on the front page if you're a mate of the editor of the Times? But there's absolutely no suggestion from within the Times camp that that's got any any truth.
3: Yes, yeah, and obviously they they, uh, they talked about Andrew Norfolk's reputation uh, following the you know the Rotherham scandal, and, and now this has kind of really impacted on his reputation. And you know, how will his future journalism be viewed? You know, will it be trusted in the future? And I think he was quite concerned about that.
2: Yeah, we were saying, weren't we, it's, it's a sh- shame or however you want to look at it, because he has such a sterling reputation, 20 years worth of it, for some really high profile cases like Rotherham. But if you Google his name now, um, it's forever going to be attached with that.
0: And uh, how easily someone's someone's reputation can be damaged by by just a single story. I guess it's a, it's a lesson to all of us. But more now, let's let's turn now to what you mentioned earlier on, Jez, that um, how the broadcasters and other news outlets have covered that Euro 2020 England-Bulgaria match in Sofia, which was stopped twice because of racist chanting directed at black players. It's been interesting in the light of the Nagamanchetti row at the BBC to see just how open commentators and news reporters have been in condemning upfront what they see as racist behaviour on the terraces where there's been so much more sensitivity about racism on Twitter from the White House, for example. So, Jez, give us a bit more about... What, what yeah. was your impression when you... Because you, well, you watched I, the game live I, and I saw some a, of the stuff, I didn't watched you? I the
3: game live. It was being broadcast on ITV, so obviously not the BBC. Um, and the game was stopped after about 15 minutes, I think. Um, it wasn't clear at first what was happening. But the, the ITV uh, commentator, obviously there to report on the match, cover the sport. Saying that there was obviously racist chants, um, racist uh, Nazi salutes were being uh, being done by members of the Bulgaria fans, um, and they, they were explaining that uh, the new protocol over dealing with racism at football was being implemented. And I believe this is the first game where it's been used used, yeah Yeah, Mm. so we obviously saw pictures of uh gareth southgate speaking to the fourth official who then spoke to the referee the game was halted um and there was an announcement over the pa uh, system in the stadium you know to you know to stop the the racism Uh, the game was restarted but again after about another 15 minutes or so the same happened and it was the second stage. Uh, at that point, it appeared that a lot of the Bulgarian fans who were causing this uh, problem left the stadium. Um, but it was interesting that ITV were cutting from the players who were looking distressed, cutting to the, the crowd. So we were seeing a lot of this you know, offensive behaviour. Um, and then it, then it obviously went went back at half-time to the, uh, to the studio and you had the panellists, the pundits, really not talking about the football but talking about this whole incident and it was very clear that the commentators were giving their views and were calling out racist behavior there was no kind of um trying to play it um in an impartial way it was very much you know this is unacceptable
0: yeah, and one of the things that struck me was how the the BBC news reporter who was on the ten o'clock news that evening was was quite upfront and and said, you know, this is unacceptable. And what struck me was he didn't say this is under unacceptable under UEFA's rules. He oh. just said this is unacceptable, mm. and I thought that was begin. That was that's. I thought that had strayed into that that area of comment and and. Uh, was was kind of well beyond some of the stuff that Naga Manchetti was accused of having done. Maybe,
1: yeah. I think uh, and maybe because it's a sport uh, and yeah, the fact that it's yeah. a given. I mean, I was thinking. I didn't watch the match. Jazz. Uh, was it what time was it on?
3: Well, it was that would that would have been uh, post watershed as well, I guess. Um, I was thinking about harming
1: offense. You know, coming from an OffCon point of view, how much uh, how do the shots linger on the violence? Could it in any way be classed as uh, you know? Glamourising or not incitements, but, you know, maybe causing possible harm and offence. They've got to be careful, and, you know, it's a live game, but...
0: Um, yeah. I'm just I like- mean, those
2: shots were horrible to look at.
0: Yeah, they, they were, Deb, they, they were pretty awful to look at, you know, Nazi salutes and so on. It was pretty yeah. grotesque, really.
2: I think you're quite right, Dave, there would have definitely been a consideration about how long you linger on those. I mean, from what I gather, they were they were quite brief, right, at
0: I, I think they were quite brief, so the excerpts that we'll have seen in the news and so on mm. would have, would maybe have overemphasised the amount of time that they, they yeah. took up sure. and perhaps not shown how quickly the officials reacted to it and how quickly Gareth Southgate reacted to it. I don't know, what was what was your impression watching it live, Jez? In regards to what? Sorry, Paige. How, how quickly or slowly the officials and, and Gareth Southgate and the other reacted. They Gareth seemed reacted. to react
3: very quickly, and from what I understand, um, the initial... Um, Complaint needs to come from the players, but through their captain. So obviously it came through Harry Kane, and he went and spoke to Gareth Southgate, and and Gareth Southgate seemed to be very quick off the mark to get the uh, officials involved. You know, and the, the the officials were very quick as well. So um, yeah, I think there was a quick response to it.
0: And, Deborah, you you, you know, the, the Bulgarian police say a number of people have been arrested this morning I saw so. I think four people have been arrested this morning. Heads have rolled in the, the, the equivalent of the FA in, in Bulgaria. Um, do you think the, the, the authorities have reacted quickly enough to, to stamp this down?
2: I mean, uh, if I'm honest, I, I've not um, seen the detail of what you're talking about. So the match took place on Monday night. No. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, if if they've reacted as speedily as justice as can be done in terms of bringing charges and what have you then it's it seems so i think what's good to see um and what people are talking about pride and and, and the papers are is the way that the players and Gareth Southgate responded and these new rules kicked in um which i think you know was credible to all of them um, for me, the thing that, that hangs over most from it is definitely what you just touched on, which is kind of comparisons that this brings in terms of what commentators were saying, including on BBC News, compared to Nagamanchetti. I'm really interested to see how that plays out and whether you know things like this start to expedite the need to understand where the line lies in terms of talking about racism on the BBC.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, look, let's, let's, there may be more on this that we'll come back to uh, in, in future episodes. But we'll finally this week, uh, a story that I've been looking forward to ever since this came through my door at the weekend.
4: What do you mean? asked Roxy. We know what's right and wrong. I'll tell you a story, said Lady Hale, to help you follow along.
2: There was a mum from Tanzania.
4: Her children were British like
2: you. When she asked to stay in this country, what she said wasn't always true.
4: She was told she would be sent away. Her family was terrible sad. Her kids wouldn't have had to go with her, leaving their friends and even their dad.
2: But we changed the law by deciding it wasn't fair to make her leave. Children shouldn't suffer for adults' mistakes. That is what I believe.
0: So that's just a little excerpt from from the book "Equal to Everything," Judge Brenda at the Sup- and the Supreme Court by um, Afua Hirsch and Henny Beaumont, um, just published this week to coincide with the tenth anniversary um, of uh, the the foundation of the Supreme Court, and of course, uh, Brenda Hale's. Um, very high profile role in the last couple of days, including actually this morning. She's made a, she's made a, released a judgment about um, a district judge who now has the right to go back to an employment tribunal as a whistleblower. Um, because she'd been she said she'd she been bullied by other people in the magistrate's court system and uh lady hale has said that she should be classified as a as a whistleblower which is a new one um but uh uh deb you've been you've been looking at the the uh, equal to everything book as well we were having a look at it in the, yeah. the staff room the other day
2: yeah i just i mean it's the most lovely book and what a great combination um for me in terms of f o. hirsch who just is the most lovely writer and brenda hale who obviously has the most wonderful stories but yes brenda hale's come to the attention of everyone in the past couple of weeks because of the supreme court ruling but actually what this book reminds you of is how many fantastically meaningful um judgments she's been involved in um historic judgments and what an influence she's been in terms of where our law positions itself on equality so it's wonderful to see that taken to a new audience in such a Really nicely presented book. And I just wonder how dolls now, like they have in America, for <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and you know that, that little excerpt that we ran there, which is about quite a complicated asylum seeker case, and mm. they boiled it down in you know into, into children's rhyme that, that young people can understand. So there is actually quite a lot of quite complicated law in there, but yeah. they, they've put it. Um, Afro and Henny have put it in such a an accessible way. It's, it's some achievement, really.
2: Yeah. And what's really nice, it ties in with There's quite a movement at the moment for books which teach young children about people who've made a difference or been influential or pushed themselves um, out of their comfort zone or pushed at boundaries and left those kind of doors open for others. And this fits in with that. And they all are doing a great job of making often complex stories and topics digestible for younger people.
3: Yeah, we've been waiting for a successor to Harry Potter, haven't we, for years, so we've now got Judge Brenda in the Supreme Court, so uh, that might be following in those footsteps.
2: Yeah, we don't
0: even have to look at fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So, equal to everything published this week by LAG, which is a, an access to law um, charity, and uh, yeah, I mean, do do have a look at it. Um, I, I think I'll probably get copies for the university library. Maybe not quite library material, <laughs> university library material, but I think certainly it's uh, some of some of uh, my. Post-gr- in fact, the, the voices you heard there were two, two of our post-grad students reading it, and I've been recommending it to, um, to the law post-grads. So, uh, yeah, I think it deserves, deserves quite a wide audience. So do let us know what you think about Judge Brenda on Twitter at RightsBang. And remember, you can tweet us uh, if there are issues in your lectures or in your reading that you would like us to cover in future episodes. Uh, before we wrap up this week, um, Dave, Deborah Jez, what's coming up for the students in the classes over the next couple of days, Dave?
1: Um, contempt tomorrow. For, uh, hopefully not for my lectures, but for the subject matter. Exactly. Um, yes. So there we go.
3: <laughs> and for the level sixes, I think we're going to be doing uh, sources next week and uh, protecting sources.
0: Yep. So, so Debra, you'll be, you'll be in on that one as well on protecting yeah, sources. There's an idea
2: that with the final years. So, um, yep we'll be looking over some previous case history and we always in law and ethics lessons have whatever's been going on that week and we've had a pretty fruitful month
0: of it yeah yeah absolutely so i'm I'm taking the postgrads to uh, manchester and salford um, magistrates court next week so um, we'll do a report back on that um, next week Um, that should be interesting i'm I'm looking forward to that the the, the court visits are always good i think the students really enjoy them and uh, yeah so hopefully a productive couple of days and then we've got uh, crown court the week after so that'll be interesting and so you will hear more on that later on but um, thanks all um, remember you can subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts on stitcher uh, just search for bang to rights and you'll also find us on the mmu northern quota SoundCloud feed that's all one word mmu northern quota um, so thanks very much deborah no
2: problem thank you
0: thanks dave thanks pete thanks jez thanks pete so for the moment we have been bang to rights thanks for listening and we'll see you soon thanks all so this week we're looking at the first public response in two years to new criticism of a highly controversial story dubbed the Muslim fostering care row by the... Pr- <laughs> <laughs> you need a <laughs> ring binder. <laughs> Dave's just dropped his script.
1: <laughs> it's a broadcast moment. You never get this in print, <laughs> do you? Yeah, this I'm is, this is why Adam Fleming <laughs> has his ring binder. I'm going to do a edition. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know, it won't be a yeah. right of the night. <laughs> I'm going to leave it. I'm going to. You
2: can save it for the bleepers, Pete. <laughs>
1: it's been a long it's, day. It's, it's definitely going to stay in.
0: Yeah, that's, that's my trick, Pete. <laughs> right. Christmas
2: episode. <laughs>